Well, good morning, church. Good morning to a couple of you who are on your toes. Well done. To the rest of you, good morning again. There it is. Hey, um, it's great to see you. It's great to worship alongside of you. Uh, if you're a guest this morning, maybe it's the first time you're checking us out, I just want to uh, say welcome to you. So thankful that you have chosen to join us. If we haven't met, uh, my name is Paul Pretty. I am the teaching pastor here at Life Point Church. And again, just really grateful uh, to have the opportunity to worship alongside of you. A couple of things uh, before we get going. If you are a guest uh, this morning, I do want to direct you to lpguest.com. Uh, sometime before you leave, lpguest.com. Also, in front of your chairs, there should be some QR codes. If you get your phone out, scan that QR code with your uh, camera. It will direct you to lpguest.com. There's a digital guest information card there. We'd love uh, for you to fill that out so that we can connect with you um, and we can get you plugged in. Um, so this morning, uh, across campuses, um, there's some folks, uh, we're, we're doing standalone here um, at, at, in the Marion campus. Again, just as, as a reminder, LifePoint, we are one church. We meet in five different locations. Uh, we've been in a series for about four weeks. Uh, well, actually, I think this is week four, um, going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And we've, we've named this um, series Under the Sun because of a key phrase that the author of Ecclesiastes uses over and over again, this phrase of under the sun. And when he says this, what he's meaning is things of this earth, things that are earthly and not spiritual. And so um, I think it I think it helps, given we're sort of at the midway point of this series that's going to take us into August, to give a little bit of a recap of where we have been. And I think of where we are in this book in terms of the structure a little bit like a, a, a great um, cinematic conversation between Shrek and Donkey, um, if that gives you my level of sophistication. And so there's this part where Shrek and Donkey are going out to, to go and, and rescue the princess, and the only reason Shrek is doing it is because he wants his swamp back. And so Donkey, in his eloquent way, eloquent way says to uh, Shrek, why don't you just go and, and you know, grind his bones and use them for your bread and a bunch of other stuff? And, and Shrek's like, look, it's not that simple. There, there's more to an ogre than this, this violence. He says, he says, ogres are a little bit like onions. Donkey goes, they stink, which is a classic response. He says, no, they've got layers. And they've got layers. And, and when I look at this book, it's a little bit like an onion with layers. Here, here's what I mean by that. In chapter 1, the author of Ecclesiastes, there's two primary characters in a sense. There's this preacher who gives the vast majority of the content of the book of Ecclesiastes. There is an author who introduces us to the preacher in verse 1. He says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And so then most of the rest of the book is the words of the preacher. But again, he asks this question in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, Van, excuse me, he says um, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And that's really this driving question. What does a man gain by all of his work, by all of his labor? And he gives the answer to that question in verse 2 of chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I know this is review. Bear with me. And what he, means by, what he means by vanity is really this, meaninglessness, emptiness. He says, what does a man gain by chasing the world? Nothing. And then what we see is that the preacher takes chapter after chapter after chapter to prove that point to us. He's giving us the answer on the top, and then he's going to, like an onion, peel back the layers and say, I'm going to prove it to you. I followed wisdom, vanity. I pursued pleasure in the forms of enjoyment and employment. The end was vanity. He had possession after possession. He had wife, wife after wife. He had castles. He had everything you can imagine, palaces. 
the end was vanity. And again, he spends the next six chapters explaining that. Last week, Ben did a great job walking us through chapter 6. And there's a verse at the end of chapter 6 that almost serves as another layer to this onion that the preacher is peeling back. He says this in verse 12 of chapter 6. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, for which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man, who can, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So it's almost as if he's reached this point to say, I have fully explained and proven why living for this life is empty, vain, but yet there's still a life to live. There's still air in my lungs, and so now he's getting to this question of, well, what do I then do with the air in my lungs? What do I then do with the life that has been given to me? And what we're going to see in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, we're going to spend uh, three to four weeks in chapters 7 and 8, is really him answering this question for us once again. What is good for us? If living for the world ends in meaninglessness, what is good for us? What we've said each week of this series, the main big idea of this series is that God offers us a full life in an empty world. And again, we get to dive a little bit deeper. We get to peel back the layers of this onion. Book of Ecclesiastes, it doesn't smell bad, but it can make you cry. Asking and answering this question, what is good? And so, that's really where we get into things. We're going to be in verses 1 through 5. We're going to go in several other places in the scriptures. But again, my goal is to help walk through this as the preacher asks this question, what is good for man in the life that he has been given short as it is. Now, I want to go ahead and pray for us, uh, and then we'll get into the text, because as always, we need the Lord's help. Uh, Father, as we open your word, um, you promise it to be living and active. And so, God, we, we want to cling to that promise this morning. Uh, Father, I need your help. It's a difficult text this morning, so would you um, help me? Uh, would you shape us? Uh, would you transform us? Would you help us see what it is your word has for us, uh, that we might benefit and we might become more like you, Jesus? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, we're going to head and open things up. Verse 1, chapter 7, it says this. A good name is better than precious ointment. It's like, oh, man, this downer this whole time, that sounds pretty nice. You know, it's like, okay, a good name is better than fine ointment. I think we sort of get the point there. It's a good reminder. Hey, if you're living this life for all of the possessions and all the things you can get, but you're steamrolling people along the way... You're living life the wrong way. It's like, great, okay. It, it almost is as if, it's, it's if, as if we're in the book of Proverbs suddenly. Well, uh, let's get to the second half of verse 1. And the day of death than the day of birth. So when we read those two together, a good name is better than precious ointment. Now here comes Eeyore, the day of death better than the day of birth. That doesn't make any sense, so let's hold on to that. Verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Happy Fourth of July weekend, everybody. It's going to be great. I mean, what do we do with this? And I think it's a fair, reasonable question. What do we do with this? This is the wisest man to ever live. 
Speaking from the voice of King Solomon. And so there's wisdom here. And I think the question is, okay, well, yeah, what is the wisdom for us? And I think the question too is, is this right? I think verse two really sums it up. Is it, it, excuse me, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Let me just leave that verse up here. I can diagram it for us. What he's saying here, translation is, um, while you're alive, what you should do is consider um, that the end of mankind is death and that um, you should then spend time with people who are mourning death um, because you need to consider death. And so should we listen to this? Should we spend time in this avenue of life? And, and I think anytime, church, it, it, this is a really good opportunity for us. Anytime we are in a place in the scriptures that are difficult, hard to understand, and we find ourselves asking, what is he saying? Is this true? Is this right? There's a, a foundational principle that we have to remember. The Bible interprets the Bible. Okay? The Bible interprets the Bible. So what, what I really want to do in order to figure out if this is right and good for us, is I want to go to other places in the Scripture where something similar may be being taught. Again, general principle. Anytime you're in the Word and you're like, what is happening? And you'll get there. The Bible interprets the Bible. And we also need to remember, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, every word of the Bible is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching profitable to be essentially shaped, right? And so this is the word of God. So what is the prophet in it? Now, I want to direct us to a few different places in the New Testament. Again, understanding, is this right? Is this good? We're going to first go to the book of Matthew and look at the words of Jesus in chapter 5 and some of his words in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Seems as though he's saying something similar, at least. I'm not going to really dig into these verses, but we actually covered these verses six or eight weeks ago in the message uh, referred to as happiness. It's always in the message archive on the website if you are curious at all. But essentially what we found is that, that blessed, this term really means happiness. And so when we look at this, it says blessed are the poor in spirit. It's like happy are the poor in spirit. How can that be? Right? The meek, they will inherit the earth. How can that be? And what we eventually saw was that when we trust in the promises of God and who God is, suddenly these upside-down promises seem to be right-side up. We realize that Jesus is the king. We realize that all things are going to be made new. We realize that while this life has pain and suffering, Jesus has overcome the world. And so we can trust these words. Now, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul speaking. Apostle Paul, an incredible ministry and, and life, of course. It says this in uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. It says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Again, I'm not going to go into great detail here and, and diagram all of this, but once again, if, if we're looking at the, the words of the preacher and he's saying, this is good for you, 
What are the other passages? And there's many that we could go to. Lastly, I want to take us to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul once again speaking. We'll go into a little bit more detail with this one. He says this in verse 2, I know a man, surely speaking of himself, in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Sounds a little bit confusing, but essentially, the Apostle Paul has this vision of, of paradise. So you can think of it almost like heaven. Whether he sees Jesus, it's not real clear. He sees angels, something extraordinary, something miraculous. And he sees this, and so that's really what he's saying here. If we pick back up uh, in, in verse uh, 5, he says, On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except for my weakness. Uh, excuse me, verse 6, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And so this turn takes a really weird, really interesting turn. It has this great revelation, this great vision, and then the text tells us a thorn was given him in the flesh in order to what? Keep him from becoming conceited. Weird. <laughs> and the text then tells us he pleads with God three times, to take this away. And we don't think this was a sin issue. We rather think this was likely a physical ailment. So the Apostle Paul is pleading with God, take this thing away from me. And Jesus says, Jesus says this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you in verse nine, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Backwards. Weird. <laughs> Frankly. Strange. And so now, if we get back to Ecclesiastes chapter 17, with that background knowledge of rounding out our view of what this preacher is teaching and us determining, is this right? Is this good? Should we follow this counsel? I want to once again remind us of the verses. I know we've already read them twice and I've gone through it, but just remind us of these verses. Beginning in verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. I think overall, if we were to zoom out and really ask what is being said here, I think we get this point. Difficulty develops dependence. Difficulty develops dependence. Again, if you go back into the New Testament and you look at these passages... It's hardship, it's pain, it's struggle, it's trial, it's tension, it's conflict. It's the Apostle Paul suffering all sorts of persecutions. It's the Apostle Paul going through his, his resume of, of pain in a sense. And yet, we know that the Apostle Paul, God used mightily to advance the gospel to the Gentile nations. 
So I think that's the principle at play here. And so then we get back to this question, is the preacher correct? Is this wise counsel to follow? Several things I think we have to see. The first is this. Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 5, is wise counsel only, only if Jesus is central. It's wise counsel if Jesus is central. Go back to those other passages. Okay, I know we're sort of going in a weird direction this morning, and there's a lot of different pieces coming together. But notice who is at the center of every single passage. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, who is speaking? Jesus, of course. How are all of those backwards things, the, the meek, the mourning, how are they made right? Only through Jesus. The Apostle Paul, as he's talking about, they are, they are beaten, they are afflicted, all of these things, but they do not spare, they are not crushed. What is central? Only Christ in him. It's only Jesus' power working through him that makes any of that make sense and that makes any of that bearable. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, going through this story and how he's given this thorn in his side, he literally says, when I am weak, then and I am strong. Why? Because he knows he can't do it on his own. Because he knows he's in need. And Jesus says, my power is perfected in what? Weakness. Very backwards, very fascinating, very odd. And so, we can't look at this from an under-the-sun perspective. Because everything in us, I think, pushes back against things like this, hang out with sad people. <laughs> it's like, no, I want to be happy. Of course we do. That's natural human nature. We want to be happy. And yet, if we have a heavenly perspective about mourning, about death, about pain, suddenly we have a right perspective. Second thing I think we have to see, going, going back to um, the second half of verse 1, this really odd statement, in the day of Beth, death than the day of birth. And, and it's like, is he really saying it's better to die than to live? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think what he's saying is this, that the death of others forces us to consider the future death of ourselves. Once again, something that we don't like to consider, something that is uncomfortable, uncomfortable for us to think about, and yet I think that's what he's saying. Remember in verse 2, everything sort of hinged on verse 2 in this passage. It was all about, look, consider that one day you will die. And so what happens when a baby is born? What do we think about? It's life, it's future, the beauty of birth, as we should. That is all right, that is all good. We should praise God for the wonder of life in a baby. Praise God. And yet, as we consider the end, what does that do? It makes us think about, well, what is next? What is next for me? What is next for my loved ones? What is next for my coworkers? What is next for my family members? As we consider the hard things and as we consider that the end will one day come, we're forced to reconcile with the fact that we're not going to live forever. Forced to reconcile with the fact that one day we're all going to face God. And is that good? I think it's right and good for us to consider because we are so easily distracted. We so easily want to pursue pleasure. We so easily want to pursue the easy, good life. We don't want to think about the bad things. We do every, excuse me, everything we can to avoid the bad things. We spend a whole lot of money trying to avoid death. And again, it's not that life is bad, it's just that there's benefit in considering that one day this will all come to an end. Point three. I think we have to see this. When we consider death to be eminent, the advance of the gospel becomes urgent. 
When we consider the fact that every single person is going to come to an end here, the advance of the gospel should become urgent in our life. Because the only way, church, the only way for people to experience life in death is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we've got to see that and know that. And as we consider, as we, as we don't try and avoid thinking about the end, but rather allow it to, say, to really rest on our hearts and on our minds and say, God, help me have a right heart, a right attitude toward reaching those around me who don't yet know and love Jesus. And I think so often we give excuses. Well, I'm, I'm not the pastor. I don't know all the right answers. I didn't go to, you know, theology place, whatever. You know, we get all of these excuses in our heads. And what I would say, church, you have every tool you need if you are a genuine believer in Jesus. If you are a genuine believer in Jesus, what that means is that you have come to a point in your life to realize I am a sinner in need of a Savior. You have come to the point to the realize that I can't do this on my own. You've come to a point and said, I need help. And if you've come to the point where you realized you're a sinner in need of a Savior, what that means is that if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you've said to Jesus, I need your righteousness, and I need your life, and I need your grace, and I need your mercy. And when we say we believe in Jesus, we're not just believing mental assent that Jesus existed. What we're believing is that Jesus died for our sins, that he took the penalty for our sins upon himself from God the Father. That's what believe in Jesus means. Give your life to Jesus. That's what's happening. And so if you've done that, church, you have everything you need. No one can refute life change. No one can refute heart transformation. No one can refute the person you used to be and the person you now are because of your faith in Jesus. And so as we consider death to be imminent, again, happy 4th of July, we must, once again must make the gospel urgent in our lives. Now, again, I think overall we get this overarching point from verses 1 through 5, from the other texts in the New Testament that we read, and there are many other, others that difficulty develops dependence. Here's really what, a, couple of, a couple of things I think we see. If difficulty develops de- dependence, and our life is difficult, upon whom or what do you depend? <laughs> right? the, the sort of point here is that difficulty develops dependence, and that's sort of this natural thing that happens, right? It just, we, we suddenly, if we go through trial, if we go through struggle, we, we want to depend on something or someone. Think about a, a little baby. When they cry, who do they cry for? Usually mom, dad, get away from me. At least that's how it is in my house, right? We, we want to cling, we want to depend, we want to be reliant upon someone or something. And so right now, if difficulty, you're in a season of difficulty, if life is hard, and I think that is some of us, my question is, on who or whom or what are you depending upon? Maybe it's another person and you're looking to this other person to satisfy every deep craving of your soul, and you're clinging on to them so tightly, and you love them, great, but they can't be Jesus in your life. They can't save you. And if you make them a savior in your life, you will destroy the beauty of that relationship. Other people will let us down. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have right and healthy relationships. We should. But we should have right and healthy relationships with a gospel-centric focus. Him or her, they can't be your savior. And what about the what do we depend on? Well, so often we want to be distracted from pain. We want to be distracted from 
anything uncomfortable. We want to avoid discomfort at all costs. Let me give you the, the extreme that this has come to in our society. When I was in middle school, I went to a basketball camp, and um, every summer we had this basketball camp, and, and on the last day of camp, we'd have these different competitions. There was Dribble King, there was Hot Shot, there was a one-on-one tournament, there was all these different competitions, free throw shooting. Well, on the last day, I won two of those trophies. It's not because I was good, it's because there were five other kids in my school, and I was this big in seventh grade, okay? <laughs> and so I won two of them. I was like, that's awesome. The, the high school varsity coach, he comes up to me and he goes, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of which trophy you want. You take that one, and we're going to give the other one to the kid who got second place. I was like, you sound insane right now. Right? And so I took one-on-one because that's the superior trophy. And um, the kid who got second in Dribble King, he got that trophy. And he, I went to his house a couple months later. He had the audacity to have it displayed on his mantle. I'm like, bro, you didn't win that. Anyway, that's just a... I'm not, I'm not bitter about it. I've gotten over it. But here's the thing. We, we do everything we can to coddle and to say, no, it's okay. Don't feel bad. Here's a participation thing. In our life, we say, oh, you're upset. What, what can we get you? Let's go get something. Let's go buy something. That'll help us feel better. Maybe for a little bit. Oh, you're feeling sad. How, how can we distract you from that? Rather than going in depth and say, what is at the core of that sadness? What is at the core of that pain? What are you longing for? And as we've seen in this text and other weeks, Ecclesiastes 3, chapter 11, God has placed eternity in our hearts. And so all of us are longing for God. And yet we, have, we, we try and shove these random things in this God-sized hole in our heart, and it doesn't work. We're not satisfied. And so if you're in a difficult season and difficulty develops dependence, who or what are you depending on? We have to identify that. And if you say to yourself, I'm not depending upon Jesus, well, here's the really, really good news. You can repent. <laughs> I think sometimes we forget when we identify as Christians that repentance is still for us. We come to this moment when we first believe in Jesus and we say, that's right, I repent, I place my faith in Jesus. And in that moment, the moment you do that, you're called justified before God. God views you as righteous because of Jesus. But here's the thing, you're still a sinner. And so what that means is I'm still a sinner. And so we have to live in this tension of continually repenting to Jesus and saying, make me more and more and more like you. I need to be conformed to your image. I need to be made like you, Jesus. And so maybe this is an opportunity for us to repent of things we're clinging on to, to be made more like Jesus. Here's the other wonderful news. If you're in this season where you're depending on another person to get through or on a substance to get through, or whatever it may be to get through, God wants to hear from you. You can pray to God and he inclines his ear to you like a loving father inclines his ear to a little child. He wants to hear from you. He wants to know you. We also know that God has given us his word, all of it breathed out by God, all of it living and active to shape us and penetrate our hearts. You can read the Bible yourself. Not only that, but God has given us a people to belong to. He's given us the church, the body of Christ, to really know, to love, to belong to, and to, to gather around. We have a value here at LifePoint we call authentic community. When you walk past these windows, you might have seen a, some graphic that said where no one walks alone. That is a big, large vision. 
But imagine if you had other people in your life walking alongside of you who knew what you were walking through and you also knew what they were walking through. And you could walk through that together and you could see Jesus' mercy and grace in your life. That's what the church is meant to be. Where do you need to take a step? Now, again, difficulty develops dependence. And if life is hard, you've got to identify what you're depending on. On the other end of the spectrum, if difficulty produces or develops dependence and life is really good, this is going to sound crazy. How can you develop and produce gospel-centered difficulty? Let me say that again. If difficulty produces dependence and life is great, relatively speaking, I know life is never perfect, but a lot of us, we got really blessed lives, myself included. And we need to be dependent on Jesus, but when, we're, when things are great, when things are good, and we sort of get lazy, we sort of like, yeah, I mean, you know, I haven't been to church in a while, but it's fine, I don't really need to, everything's great. And then something bad happens, and you're like, we got to get to church, right? Why do we do that? <laughs> we do. And so what I'm saying is I, I want to I avoid that, and I want to say, actually, you can be dependent on Jesus when your kids are healthy, when you've got a great house, when you've got a great car. Those things aren't bad. Those things aren't evil in and of themselves. You can be dependent upon Jesus and have a great job, a great house, a great family, and live the really, really nice life. It's possible, to be clear. I'm not saying those things are bad. If those things become gods, then they're bad. That's an issue. But what I think we have to do is we have to take... Biblical steps to create difficulty in our lives. And again, I know that sounds insane, but here, here's what I mean by this. Think back to those passages in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 12. What was the type of life we saw the Apostle Paul living? Radical. Radical obedience. What we see Paul doing is he's, he's given this command from Jesus to go to the Gentiles, to make disciples, to preach the gospel. And he's like, okay. And so he goes and he does that, and he is faithful and he is obedient. And as he is obedient, that had to be really hard for him to do. Consider all the things that he had to give up. Consider all the things he had to leave behind. And so as he's leaving these things behind, he's having to say, Jesus, I need you desperately. I'm being obedient. I'm depending upon you. The Apostle Paul is a very extreme example. So what does this look like for us? What does it look like to produce difficulty in our lives? Which sounds like a horrible idea and something really dangerous to say. I will own that. What does it look like to produce gospel, biblical difficulty in our lives? I think it's actually quite simple. John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, actually producing biblical difficulty in your life is, can be as simple as loving someone who's really hard to love. And I know no one's hard to love in here. I know we're all great. But think about this. If it's like, God, how do I actually do that? That might require you to step out of your comfort zone. That might require you to invite a family over for dinner that you just, ah, this might be awkward. It probably will be, but God can work through that. It's okay. That's really simple, subtle difficulty that actually causes you to depend upon, to depend upon Jesus more. Do you see that? You see that connection. Let me give you another one. Matthew 20, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Here's the really great news. Jesus didn't ask us to die on the cross. He already did that for us. Praise God. So we're a little bit off the hook. But he says he did not come to be served, but to serve. And so as a way of cultivating dependency through sort of difficulty, I think sometimes we have to say, okay, how can I lay down my priorities and my preferences and my schedule to serve someone who needs help? That can be difficult. That can be out of your comfort zone. I hear that. The first place I served here when we started attending LifePoint Church 2016 in Delaware when it first launched was in LifePoint Kids. I was a crew leader, and I was terrible at it. I'm sorry to all those kids who had me as a crew leader. And it was far scarier for me to teach those crew kids a lesson than it is to stand right here and talk to you. But here's the thing. It forced me to depend upon Jesus because, like, I can't do this. This is scary for me. I'm going to get into the Word. I'm going to try and study because I get to shepherd these little hearts That was difficulty that then produced in me a desperate dependency on Jesus. So here's what I want to ask us this morning, church. How can you take a step to follow a very basic, very simple command of Jesus that's going to require something of you so that you'll depend upon Jesus and that you'll be weak so that he can be strong? that you'll be lowly so he can be magnified. She won't be in your element because that's where Jesus is, in his element. Maybe it's as simple as talking to your neighbor. Maybe it's as simple as going back to your life group and saying, how are we actually serving this city? Golly, there's a lot of people in need in this city. How can we walk alongside ministries who are crushing it and doing great work through the context of our life groups to actually make a difference here so that Jesus would be magnified. It's going to take some discomfort. We're going to have to make some sacrifices. We're going to have to do some things that are hard for us, but that's actually really good for us, according to the author of Ecclesiastes. (laughs) How can we see somebody who is mourning, who is hurting, who is weak, and not avoid the uncomfortable nature of pain and sorrow, but step into it and say, there is hope. You don't have to look at this tragedy, look at this pain through the lens of the earth. You can look to the heavens. Because Jesus has promises that are true for you. Jesus has realities that we need to accept into our hearts, not to avoid the pain, but to step into it with Jesus, because Jesus makes everything right, even when it doesn't make sense in the moment. And so as we close this morning, I really want to ask you, what is God speaking to you this morning? And what are you going to do about that? It's perhaps the most uncomfortable question we can be asked because we're forced to ask ourselves, God, what are you speaking to me? And maybe for you that's saying, no, I'm going to actually wake up early so I can get time in the Word. That's difficulty that requires dependence. Maybe for you it's, I'm going to step into a life group. I've been hesitant to, again, It's where Jesus changed my life. It's through the context of life groups. So I have no shame in just promoting the heck out of it. Really. That's going to be uncomfortable for you. Okay, what's the step that you can take? Again, if you're in a season and things are difficult, but you're depending on other things, what's a step you can take to flee from those other things and to run toward Jesus? Because he wants you. He desires you. His arms are open for you. He's not going to shame you. He's going to see you as you are. And he's going to transform you. So I want us to bow our heads and I want us to just take a moment to think and to pray. 
God, what are you speaking to us this morning? God, how can we flee comfort? We don't have to be like crazy. I'm not saying we have to all sell our possessions and move to Honduras. If God is speaking that to us, then you should do that. But I don't think he's probably speaking that to all of us. But I do think he's speaking to all of us that we need to be obedient. And that looks a little bit different for every single person in the room this morning. God, would you give us a heart of repentance? Say, God, forgive me for having clinging to these things to just make it through. I don't want to cling to the world. I want to cling to you. Maybe this morning you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus and I'm standing up here and I'm talking through all this stuff and you're like, that sounds really confusing and really awesome all at the same time. And so if that's you, I just want to give you the space and the moment to say, Jesus, I I desire you. Jesus, I I have gone against you. I've sinned. I've, I've gone my own way. But I want to go a new way. So you say, Jesus, forgive me for how I've sinned, for how I've rebelled. I trust that you took the penalty for my sin that I deserved. You took the death that I deserved. And instead, you don't give me death, but you give me life. If that's you, I just want to encourage you toward that this morning. And for all of us, by the power of your spirit, Father, work in us. What are you speaking to us? How are we going to be faithful to respond? Holy Spirit, we need you to do that in us. We cannot do it on our own. It's in Jesus' wonderful, powerful name that we pray all of these things.